Welcome back to the Idiom Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. In this episode, I have a chat with the Disco Fries. The Disco Fries have been a staple in the dance music scene for over a decade, with releases on pretty much all of the big electronic labels, collabs with artists like Tiesto, and dozens of high-profile remixes for artists like Usher, Katy Perry, and Selena Gomez, to name a few. Given how long they've been around, they have a ton of experience and advice to share with producers of all levels in this episode. We start off with their background, discussing how they met at the Berklee School of Music and why they decided to form a duo. We talk about how they dealt with the fear that most music students go through, which is, how am I going to make a living off of this once school is over, and how they actually did that, quickly transitioning into making a living off of the Disco Fries project. Outside of releasing music and touring under the Disco Fries brand, they generate a lot of revenue from music in other ways, such as writing for film and TV and commercials, running a record label, running a publishing company, mixing and mastering for other artists, and a whole lot more. So if you're keen to find out more ways to make a living off of music that doesn't include just streaming your shows, you'll have a ton to take away from this episode. Later on, we talk about how to find the balance between making music for fun versus making music for a career, and how to avoid developing a resentful relationship with music that, as we'll talk about, all three of us have seen a lot of people fall into. The Disco Fries also offer advice for younger producers who are trying to break into the industry, as well as for producers in their late 20s or 30s that worry they'll never make it in the music industry. On the production side, we talk about their collaborative workflow, which for the past few years has actually been remote. They currently live in different cities, so if you've ever struggled to work with another artist remotely or that's something you'd like to do, there's a ton you can learn from the way that they've refined their collaborative approach. And before we wrap things up, EDM Projects launched our brand new flagship mixing course called Mixing for Producers. If you're an intermediate or advanced producer who's looking to level up your mixing skills, just do me a favor, take five minutes and check out the course. In my biased opinion, there is no better resource out there to learn how to mix electronic music like the pros. We went all out for this course, bringing in six producers to show you how they mix the releases on labels like Spinning, Enhanced Proximity, This Never Happened, and Trap Nation. These are real producers getting signed to big labels that'll show you everything that goes into a polished professional mix down. And like I said, there's really nothing else out there like this for learning how to mix electronic music. These are veteran instructors. Every track they mix has been signed to a big label, the five that I mentioned earlier, and every song has got at least six figure streams on Spotify with a few that have over seven figures. Now, Danny and Nick from the Disco Fries are instructors in this course, which we'll talk about later on in the episode, about 50 minutes in. When we do so, I'll hit you with the self-promo air horn, which sounds like this, so you know that we're about to talk about the Mixing for Producers course. Now, we just today opened up access for Mixing for Producers, and enrollment closes on Friday, March 13th, so if you're at all interested, be sure to jump on it. Go to edmprod.com backslash mixing to learn more. One of the five songs that you'll mix in this course is the Disco Fries track, Moving Mountains, which I'll play you a preview of as we slide into the interview. Outside of that, normal interview as always, which I hope will give you more fuel and motivation to keep writing music. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM podcast with the Disco Fries. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Nick and Danny of the Disco Fries. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Awesome, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, 100%. 
So to start, I'd like to learn a bit more about your guys' background with music. I know that you two met at the Berkeley School of Music going to college, which I definitely want to talk about later. But first, kind of talk about what led you two individually to go into that school. Mm, that's a good question. Uh, music was really the only thing I was super passionate about. I never considered not going to college. That was just uh, always something I was going to do. Um, so Berkeley was really kind of like the best of both worlds, like go to school, doing something that I love. I looked at a bunch of different schools, um, but Berkeley just had like that wow factor because they had all the six studios, um, you know, well-known alumni, like cool courses, all that stuff. So um, that was it for that was it for me. Yeah, pretty much the same. Like uh, I actually had looked into some other schools like Full Sail and um, just mainly things online. Berkeley was actually the only place I visited, the only place I applied to. And <laughs> it was like, if I don't get in here, then I'm just going to wing this whole thing in music, <laughs> um, which would have been fine, I think. Uh, but it's dope because that's, you know, that's how Danny and I met. And uh, who knows what would have been. But it, it like for that alone, that was like the valuable part was was meeting dope people and, and the networking and like the knowledge that came along with it was great. Um, but I think for, for me, at least like the biggest part of Berkeley was, uh, like the networking side of it and, and meeting a lot of dope people and, and we've made friends for life there. So totally. And I think if you are lucky enough to be able to go there, just being around other people that are just as committed as you are to make a career in music is huge outside of the education stuff that you're getting in the actual classroom. Yeah. Like I thought I was committed, but I remember seeing kids you know, granted minimal social skills on some of them, but because they had locked themselves in like practice yeah. rooms and in studios for endless hours. And it's just like seeing that dedication and commitment from other people obviously has an effect on you to push you to do more. So, uh, so that was dope. And to be in that environment was, was inspiring. It's like that idea of you're the average of the five people you hang out with. Well, if those five people are all phenomenal musicians at the school that you go to, you're in good company. It's like good to have them to push you. Yeah, it will. And it's interesting because I, I want to say that when Nick and I went, it might have been one of the last few years where there was no audition to get into the school. So there were a lot of people there that were not necessarily that didn't take it that seriously or weren't that skilled. And it weeded them out really quick. Like they got into the school, but a lot of them dropped out after a semester. And then I think the schools, you know, the it just applications got got overwhelming. So then they implemented the audition process to make sure that they were getting the best of the best. But yeah, you did. It was a, it was a wake up call for sure. Seeing like some of the talent that came in there. Yeah, the other thing that was kind of a weird thing for us was, you know, Dan, when I, Danny and I started making remixes, it was during college and that whole remix scene had just really started bubbling up. Um, yeah. So people in school weren't really doing it. They certainly weren't teaching it. Um, so it was kind of weird when him and I would go into, we had like one electronic uh, ensemble where you'd kind of like present productions you made and him and I were like making remixes of Usher and we'd like present this amongst these other guys that were like, doing like weird glitched out they were into like, like autecker and yeah, like yeah. boards of canada and like I don't yeah know. our teacher was recording frogs 
and like making songs out <laughs> yeah, of frog right. noises and we're like yeah yeah here's our dance remix that was just played on Sirius <laughs> uh, quite a spectrum <laughs> yeah. yeah we we were there uh oh four we graduated oh eight so what was it I'm guessing there weren't a lot of other people kind of based off of that what that were producing electronic music and kind of like the same style as you guys but I'm curious it seems like you worked very well together and obviously you've been doing this for long enough that you've continued it but what was it about each other's workflow and experience that made you start working with each other then eventually decide, hey, I, we should do this full-time together? There's, there's probably, I feel like there's a bunch of things. So our approach to production is, is pretty different. Nick's great about getting ideas down quickly, um, just good intuition and like moving, whereas I, I struggle a lot more with that and spend a lot of time obsessing over details. But I, I feel like neither of us is so firmly rooted in that mentality that we butt heads. What what ends up happening when we come together is we kind of hit that sweet spot in the middle. Um, and I mean, we've been doing it together for 10, 11, something like that years now. So um, we've gotten better at that collaborative process. But it, even uh, so stylistically, if you looked at what we were listening to in high school, you would say there's zero overlap. Um, I listened to Radiohead, Air, um, like electronic influenced rock or alternative music. And Nick was listening to a lot of hip hop, mm-hmm. but even within that somehow, like anything that overlapped between those two genres, I feel like we both gravitated towards that element. Um, we yeah. love big, uh, like cinematic dramatic elements in our music. And I think we found that pretty quickly when we started working together, like, Nick would be on the on the keys and he would lay something down and I would get super excited about it. And then yeah. you realize like we both gravitated towards these certain stylistic choices or whatever. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's helped us stay passionate. Because I, I like Nick was just over at my place uh, the other week. We live in different states now, so we don't get to work together as frequently. But we were working on this like houseier track and I had um an acapella up and we were doing like these vocal chops and nick played something on the keyboard and immediately like we both just lit up we were like oh shit like that we still get those moments of like um just we both are so on the same page and so excited about you know what what we're working on yeah it was dope It, it was dope going into a scenario where i i knew like one thing like i came from a small town in new jersey um you know, making hip hop and working with the rappers and stuff. So it was kind of one dimensional. And then to go to Berkeley and like Danny day one was like tinkering on a synthesizer that he brought up there. This like mini cork. And uh, he was like making sounds and it was like a very rudimental form of what he went on to then like study. And he's a fucking master at now, but I had never seen anybody do that in person. And it was, this was like pre like, YouTube, what you guys do and what is out there so, you know, prominently now on YouTube where you can just pull up a video of somebody sound designing and they'll walk you through it. Like in 2004, that wasn't happening. So yeah, my exposure to it was Danny and (laughs) uh, like to just try to wrap my head around that and for us to kind of fall into the same frequency of like liking that like dark classically driven stuff like adagio for strings and and records like that traffic you know songs like that that resonated with both of us that we went on to kind of use as influence on our own music 
it's it was like magic man it's hard it's hard to like put that into words like yeah it's uh it's something you can't man, uh manufacture we just ha- kind of hit the sweet spot and i'm super like business driven and danny's like super creative driven and so there's the lack of overlap there helped because we kind of both had our own niche uh to kickstart things like when i was working yeah. on business stuff for the brand he was working on the music and and we tossed things back and forth obviously we're both involved in decision making of the brand and decision making of the creative but it's um it's cool when you can have a duo that isn't like struggling like that there's not too much overlap it's definitely something that i always encourage newer producers to think about is just having people around you that have complementary skills not necessarily somebody that you're forming a duo with but if you suck at branding if you suck at marketing find somebody that is better than you at that and i think there's even more power when you're both locked in it as a duo together when you have those complementary skills that you can make sure you're pushing your career because if you're just by yourself there are so many things that you have to do you're more than capable to do them you know so many artists have successful solo projects but it's an interesting thing to think about because it takes a little bit of pressure off of you that also means that you two don't have to rely on managers or booking agents or you know your friend of a friend at business school who said he's going to pseudo manage you totally and we did i mean we we had a manager with like a handshake agreement that essentially like got us a few of our first big opportunities and then after that kind of just made sure we didn't screw ourselves over doing anything stupid by signing like crazy contracts uh but for the for for the most part we were self self-managed self-driven uh booked by ourselves for the long longest time um and i think part of that part of that is exactly like you were saying like being that there's two of us that we could you know divvy up the tasks between us and it, it wasn't such an overload that it would be for a solo artist to do the branding, do the managing, do the touring, making connections with promoters. Like it's, it's a lot for sure. So before you started working with each other as part of the Disco Fries, were you people that naturally like to work by yourselves or were you somebody's that like to work with other people? I feel like I'm a little bit of both. I'm not, I'm not super strongly uh, sided on one or the other. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely do like working by myself because I'm so particular in my production process. And I feel like that's gotten even uh, intensified over the years. Like I've become more and more neurotic about like workflow and just the, the way that everything gets done sort of. So I now like definitely need a point during a production where I have time to just sit there and spend 15 minutes you know, tweaking the the cutoff on a filter with the, with the envelope <laughs> to get it exactly like I want so yeah. that I can just move on and then I can go back and work with Nick and I'm not thinking about that anymore. Totally. Um, but I also love the collaborative process because I have never walked away from a session with a, a new artist that we're working with, whether it's a producer or a vocalist or, you know, a writer or whatever. Um, I've never walked away from a session without like, new ideas or um you know even if it's like it could be the smallest thing but it just it frames the way you look at production differently yeah and it gets you thinking um so i love walking away from those sessions like having a new perspective or picking up tricks or whatever so i i really do need a little bit of both i was with a a friend of ours uh dave tozer last night and um he produced uh john legends all of me and uh, a bunch of stuff for john um works in the pop field and um he brought up such a 
awesome point that I feel like I need to mention it kind of in line with this. Um, he was just saying he likes to work with younger artists, which is what we love to do. Like people that are on the come up that kind of have no rules because uh, it keeps him rough. And it, like over time, like as you work on your craft more, you get more and more polished. You get you refine it. You get quicker at it. You can do things more efficiently, but it also causes you to kind of fall into the same patterns. So you always reach for the same tools. You you always kind of you, you have things you do just that are habit. And for him, he likes working with new guys because it'll allow him to open up his mind to other things, things that are like you probably shouldn't do that that way. But they achieve like a certain result by doing it that way. And it opens up his mind to other ideas. And I think uh, he just articulated that really well. And I think we we gravitate towards that, too. A lot of the guys that we sign to our label, like they're records that we would obviously play out and support. But there's always something like super raw and rough about them, stuff that we you know, tend to go in and like clean up in a mix or whatever, but yeah. they come up with unique ideas that we otherwise wouldn't think of, which is why I think we gravitate towards a lot of the music we do on the label or collaborate with a lot of the guys, the same guys over and over. Um, this dude, Mimo, that uh, is signed our publishing company has a lot of cool records coming out and he's, he just has like a cool housey sound that we normally wouldn't do, but now working together with him, like he's bringing those ideas to the table. So uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a relatively common idea that you hear where you can never really stop learning, but that's being in your example said by somebody that's produced one of the most classic records of the decade in John Legend's All of Me. And even he, somebody as polished and refined that has a skill set to where it is, says, Hey, I can still learn so much from these new people that quote unquote are less successful than me. I think that's a, yeah. such a yeah. pivotal, um, just mindset to have. Totally. Sure. Well, and it's, I think that's a really important um, quality to have is um, just to be open-minded, you know, for someone like him, uh, when I'm sure when he started in the music industry, like imagine how different that whole landscape was. Um, it just moves so quickly now that if you aren't open to like kind of hearing about these new things that are on the horizon, it's, it's going to be a struggle to get back like, on pace with everyone else. You really yeah. have to stay ahead of it if you want to like keep up. So kind of looping things back to your story, you know, it's 2008, you're two months away from graduating Berkeley School of Music. What is your thought process for having to make a living after you get out of school? Uh, uh, <laughs> Nick and I, Nick and I were probably in pretty different. Yeah, we were probably in pretty different mindsets. Um, Coming, coming right out of school, I um, I was doing music. I was doing the Disco Fries stuff, uh, and we were doing, like, other... We kind of had all these other musical side projects to, to try to just get money in. But I was also working at a restaurant five or six days a week or whatever. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm just not the most driven, like... I love I love doing music, but something in my brain has not clicked where I'm like, if I want to continue doing exactly what I love for a living, I've got to like do this to figure out how to make it sustainable. I I barely have that now. And thank God that Nick has it like in spades. But at 22, I had next to none of it. Yeah. Um. So my mindset was like, all this stuff that I'm doing with Nick and Disco Fries is like 
all I'm excited about, but I have no idea where it's going. So, I, yeah, I mean, I've been, I hate saying this because Danny always shoves it in my face, but <laughs> music's like the only job I've ever had. So, like, I started when I was like 12, 13, mobile DJing, and then I continued mobile DJing, like weddings and all that, and then eventually moved into what we do now. Thank God. The other side of it, because I know that this is a podcast more about like the listener and and the up and coming producer trying to take something away from this because all they want is to be able to make music for a living. My my feedback on this has kind of like evolved over the years as we've had like ebbs and flows with our career. Um, when it's great, it's fucking amazing. But there's definitely times, definitely times on the business side, especially when you deal with certain types of people, when you're in certain types of situations that I have had the thought of like, fuck man, like I just want to do music for fun. Like where's the fun in some of this? And of course, like whatever, I come around and you find a way and stuff, but there is something to be said about people who have a career and they make music. Like you don't have to make music your life. And sometimes for some people, it it flips the other way and i've had conversations with guys that have become like resentful of music because it hasn't gone the way they wanted and it hasn't made them like a living and and instead of it being the fun thing they got into because they loved it's now become this thing that they look at with like disdain so danny and i both took different ways in but yeah i think that's just a a thought worth having sometimes is just being self-aware enough to know like, yes, I want to crack. I want to make it. I know what it's going to take. I've kind of explored all my options and this is a hundred percent what I want to do versus like, I'm passionate about it. But if push came to shove and times were tough, like, could I stick it out? And would I want to, I think there is a kind of on what you were touching on. Um, there was a, a point, it was probably a year, year and a half after, um, after we graduated, uh, that, I decided like I had to commit full full time to music. Yeah. So I moved up to New Jersey, which is where Nick is. I obviously stopped working at that restaurant and I basically started supplementing with uh mobile DJing, um, weddings, that private parties, that kind of thing. But we had gotten Disco Fries to a point where it was like between Disco Fries business and this, um, you know, doing the mobile DJing, it was enough to get by, but it meant that I could spend all of my time on the music versus when I was doing the restaurant thing, it was, and I was also, I was married like pretty much right out of college. So I had already kind of started uh, family life and people like, you know, if you've got a girlfriend or boyfriend, it's similar kind of thing. Like you start to realize you only have so much time in your day and working however much at a restaurant. And then you want to do all this production, but you also want to, spend time with your significant other, that kind of stuff. Like I realized pretty quickly that uh, segmenting, you know, dividing it up into so many things was going to make it really hard for us to grow quickly. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's definitely something to be said for just making that leap and committing full time and, you know, maybe give, give yourself a year or whatever set like some, you know, concrete amount of time, not just like, I'm just doing this, no matter what, I can't, like, I'm not going to do anything else. At some point, you may hit a hit uh, a moment where you need to step back and realize, I've given this, you know, full effort, and it's it just yeah. not meant to be. But um, you wouldn't know that unless you tried it. 
Yeah, I think the idea that you have to just jump in feet first. Uh, I'm not saying like put everything else to the side and like you obviously need to make money to live. Um, but if, if you're working like whatever, an eight hour shift during the day, like you need to spend another eight hours on music yeah. <laughs> if you want to get it off the ground. Um, and in a year, like if you look back and you say like, all right, I've hit, uh, you know, maybe I'm not making 30, 40, $70,000 a year off of it, but I've, I've made strides and I've grown my business 20%, 50%, whatever it is in a year. Like now, if I multiply that now by the next year, like how can I grow it and it, how can I build it? Like if you kind of think about it like any other business in that way, just from numbers, I think that's, that's also a tactic. Totally. Um, and a lot of the podcasts that I've been doing recently, a lot of people have taken a gap year, kind of going back to what you were saying earlier. And I think that's an interesting idea. Giving yourself a specific time limit gives you the motivation, gives you a deadline, because otherwise you're just kind of mucking around. And one of the other things that I wanted to mention, kind of on that, if you're working five, six days a week to find that time, you know, it's like this idea of 10,000 hours to be a master at something. Maybe you don't need 10,000 hours, but if you can only find 10 to 15 hours a week to work on music, it's going to be really hard to build up enough hours to get to the point where you are released ready and have like a polished artist project. Yeah, no, that's, that's tricky. And you do need to put in, you do need to put in a certain amount of time. Yeah. The, the other thing I, I think um, a lot of kids are in a great position to, excel now is that uh all these tools are available uh so yeah. easily that like i i didn't really start logging any time on like on any kind of daw like music production really until like just before college so i was already about 18 um if you can you know start getting exposed to that at 12 13 14 um i always used to joke like because i remember when maddie first broke and he was like 16 or 17 he was like super young um i was like you know what like how many hours did i log on whatever video game <laughs> like golden eye or something when i was 12 but had i applied that to music production i would have logged like a shit ton of hours by now um and so i i think it's great that uh kids are getting introduced to this so much younger so they can really start honing their skills so that because you do as you as you get older like you hit a, a point in your life where you can't dedicate the same amount of time as you could when you were 17 and you could like you had to go to school but outside of that you could literally spend every other free minute on whatever you wanted um so like getting those hours in when you have fewer obligations i think is really important not essential like of course you can pick something up later in life too but uh you're just you're presented with different challenges coming at it I think even in college, I definitely felt that when I was in college, like you don't necessarily have to worry about getting a job yet. You know what you have to do, which is do as well as you can in your courses or do well enough in your courses yep. to get a degree. But outside of that, you can just work on music. Like I was talking totally. with uh, Pierce Fulton about that on our podcast a couple months ago. I don't know if this was on or off air, but we were both kind of like nostalgic for being in college and working on music because you know now when he works on music, he has to think about, okay, I need this to put out on my artist project so I can continue this as my career because this is my job. But in college for both of us, it wasn't that thing. So not just only high school or like middle school, if you're like 13, 12 years old, but also in college, it's a huge benefit to just have the space of mind and also a good amount of time to be working on music. Yeah. The, the other sure. side of all this is like, just for people listening that are like, 
30 and up that are like it's too late it's no that's not yeah, yeah that's not what we're yeah. saying at all no like i just i think that it's crazy like david Guetta didn't have his first set of hits until he was like in his early 30s yeah it took like that long i mean his first record was like early 90s i had looked it up the other day early 90s like first record and then like he didn't even break until 2002 yeah so and obviously that's David Guetta and everybody has their own path. But like this idea that like it's over if you don't make it happen by like your early 20s is insane. At this point, you could literally be a faceless human. And if you make dope music and you put it out and you promote it, everybody will accept it. Totally. It's totally fine. You could break as an artist that way and you could be 55 for all we care. Look at fucking D-Soul. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I was reading Ari Heard Stan's book, uh, How to Make It in the New Music Business. Really great, kind of more modern, comprehensive view on it. Um, and he has like a small part in the intro exactly about that. And he just lists all of these famous artists that broke in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And at first it was just like one paragraph at the end of the page. I'm like, that's not too much. And then you turn the page and the entire thing is just artists that broke in their 30s and 40s and 50s. As long as you put in the time, everybody gets there in their own, like in their own way. But it's absolutely possible as long as you just accumulate those hours. Yep, for sure. 100%. So I don't want to spend too much time on your background because otherwise this will be like a three hour podcast. So I think just like an interesting question to kind of tie in what you're doing now to what you were doing back then is the idea of quote unquote breaking into the music industry. Obviously, so many things have changed between 2008 when you guys graduated school and kind of were getting things rolling with the Disco Fries project. And a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked me or somebody said to me, it's harder than ever to make it in the music industry. And I didn't necessarily feel like that was true. So I want to get your two takes on it. Do you feel like it's harder than it used to be to make it in the music industry? And if so, why, why not? So you, you would think it would be harder because there's more people doing it. Uh, there's better access to the tools. Um, it's easier to put yourself out there. So there's a lot more noise, but I, I, I think on some level, you have to be just as creative now as you did back in 2008. You know, 2008, you had limited outlets, you had yeah. limited resources, tools, whatever. So you had to be creative to stand out. Um, so if you look at it in terms of numbers of people doing it and, uh, you know, the amount of noise, you still kind of have to be just as creative as you did then. Um, and the thing that's tricky is like, I feel like everyone, you know, try to think of like any artist, you know, like, and try to pinpoint what it was that was like their moment where you first heard about them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just brought up Maddian. For Maddian, it was that uh, pop culture launchpad mashup routine he did on YouTube. For for us, it was probably a bootleg remix of uh, either we did one for Far East Movement and one for Avicii um, that were like the first ones where we started getting like big name DJ support on and it, but it, it wasn't like, Oh, we're going to do this Avicii bootleg and that's going to get uh Tiesto and Hardwell to play our music. It was yeah. like, we just did it. And then that happened to be our um, sort of entry onto their radar. So for, for everyone, it, it's really hard to say like, this is how I'm going to break in the music industry. Um, you just have to, keep trying different things. Uh, it, it, the list goes on and on. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know. I just saw something from two friends the other day and like the big booty mixes, like <laughs> that was their thing yeah. that really got them going. There's, 
between those three that I just mentioned, like there's nothing in common. So there's so many ways to make that first impression. Nitty gritty on TikTok might be his. Yeah. Like I was already following him, but now I see his fan base growing like crazy. Totally. Off of that platform. Yeah, I think that's really important to look at. And I see a lot of people saying, oh, like there's no new ways to market music. There's no new ways to create music. There's I can't create new many. sounds. But like, <laughs> yeah, there's a million ways. Every single, like every single day you're finding a new artist, whether it's through their sound, that is something new that they're presenting, or it's through something clever that they're doing with social media or marketing. Like there's always, always new ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're always, we're always looking to like explore all these different avenues too, because as an artist, even if you're, you're making a living now. It's not guaranteed tomorrow. Yeah. Like, so we always have to evolve and stuff. So like recently we've been working on growing our Spotify playlists and kind of some of the guys within our label. So we have a network of playlists now to go out with that we could support our own music on. Um, guys that we're homies with, two friends, we always exchange tracks with them. Like they support our stuff, we support theirs. And like, that's just, that's another way, like kind of build your own, network of whether maybe it's youtube channels that influence music growth or or spotify like we're doing apple you could do the same so like it we're just always looking for other tactics like that uh to keep it growing but I, yeah i totally agree that i agree with you that the idea that it's harder now i don't think it's any harder now in fact i think it's way easier because of all the reasons we just listed yeah I, I mean people have great detector there's so much content but People are on their phones for like five, six hours a day now. So they want things to consume. So the opportunity is there. And as long as you have good content, like it's going to get picked up. So this might be a bit of a vague or confusing question to answer. But looking back, is there anything that you would tell yourselves a decade ago in 2010 to do or not do, whether it was a big mistake or anything that you felt like you could have done a little bit better with your artist project? Um, there's always the one, something to do better. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty. One that I think I've sort of uh, realized over the past uh, six months or something is uh, when, so I was living in Jersey for a few years and then New York, and I was seeing Nick like every every other day. We were working in person a lot. Yeah. Um, and then about four years ago, I moved back down to Virginia, which is where I grew up. And uh, we just started working remotely, which in a lot of ways has been great because working independently means we can get twice as much done yeah. in theory. Um, but I found that uh, I was, and I think both of us did it to an extent, in our music, we were getting a little, you could say, indulgent, or I was losing perspective. And I started making music that I thought sounded really good, but we sort of drifted away from making stuff that we could play at our shows. Um, and it, it happened sort of gradually until we got to a point where we were like, holy shit, like we just put out, you know, like a seven track EP. And I feel like we're playing like two of the tracks off of there. Yeah. Is this really, is this really where we want to be as an artist? So I feel like recently we've kind of gotten back in a groove where we're doing a lot of making a lot of stuff that does work in our sets. Yeah. And it still works for that, like, Spotify or radio market, too. But, like, trying to wrap our heads around t checking all those boxes so that it, yeah. it it's not so, like, uh, segmented or whatever. So I think one of the things I would just say going back 10 years is, like, always be 
to always just kind of like take a moment to reflect on on what you're doing and see how it's changed or whatever so that you can maybe pick up on those on those um progressions a little earlier than us where we got i I feel like we got pretty far down that rabbit hole and it 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 can start to slow momentum like if you're making a bunch of tracks that you're not playing live you're probably not getting dj support because other djs aren't playing it yeah and then maybe your live uh show your uh bookings start to slow down because you're not putting out records that people are hearing in the clubs um so whatever your whatever your goal is just kind of like periodically check in and make sure that you're on track you know staying with what what your goal is ultimately i think that's super important i've definitely felt that and made that same mistake with my own um kind of growth with music i was at the start very inspired by shows very much wanted to create music that could be performed live and I stopped going to shows about two, three years into producing music, and then I completely lost that perspective. I lost what it felt like to be on the other side, what music was experienced like in a live show. And my music, you know, for one, I was losing inspiration because I didn't have that immediate fire of this is what it feels like to be at a show, and this is where I want my art to be. But then also I in the music I was creating, I was losing that perspective and wasn't necessarily making stuff that fit that environment. And I was less happy with it too, because I was just making more like hip hop influenced stuff, which was cool for me, but didn't give me an end result, which is what I wanted out of music. Right. And it kind of goes back to like if this is if music is something that you're doing on the side for personal enjoyment, then great. You don't yeah. need to then you're literally doing whatever you want. But if you're if you're approaching it like this is a business and you need to do certain things to keep that business growing, then it's important to make sure that you're not like fucking around doing whatever you just feel like that day. Yeah. Because ultimately that's going to hurt your business. And then maybe you're in a position where you can't, can't do it full time. Like you used to, you know, Mm -hmm. I love the idea of like what I try to do in a, in a ideal world, which doesn't always happen, but like set a day or two that are like, clear the schedule like these are creative days like just put your head in it do kind of whatever the fuck you want but then have your business days um otherwise like there are plenty of days like today where it'll be emails podcast right now jump into mixing a track and like all these hands-on things that need to be handled yeah there's definitely not going to be any creative space in the day whatsoever and i think you need that as an artist because ultimately like your creativity is what it all like boils down to at the end of the day. That's, that's what the brand should be about. So, and I think you need to carve out that time. It's super important to have it, but I understand like kids, life bills, like all these things kind of get in the way. But if you, if you literally make a schedule, like this is creative time, I think you're forced into it. And I think it could be a good habit to have. The other thing is uh, I was really surprised. I feel like there was, there was, there have been points during our career where like I really wasn't setting boundaries and I was just doing like full creative time day after day after day. Yeah. And I feel like I got nothing done. <laughs> now some people, I feel like some people maybe would, they would start to put together a sample pack. Like they would get a lot out of it. But for me, I felt like I was just messing around and it wasn't super productive. Whereas if I go into a situation where I have like, all right, I know I have two to three hours so there's some kind of time constraint, but it's within that you can do whatever you want. Yeah. I feel like you're much more focused than, okay, it's 9 a.m. I'm going to sit here for the next eight hours. There's no yeah. there's no pressure to like 
produce any to like for that time to yield something versus if you're like, okay, I know I gotta do whatever in a couple hours. So that's my hard cut off. Let's see what I can get done in that time. I feel like even if it's a self-imposed um, thing that that can really help uh, get the most out of your creativity. Totally. It's like this idea, I like to call it like controlled creativity and controlled experimentation where you're still allowing yourself room to um, have fun, experiment, get new stuff. But you're also thinking, let's try to get something done by the end of these two, three hours. Um, one of the best things that I've done for my own music in 2019 is I make it so any project that I start, I bounce a demo of by the end of that session. And that like motivates me to at least get an idea, a very, you know, basic idea down and thinking with that mentality, like, okay, you can experiment, but at least get something that you can export and throw into iTunes more often than not pushes me to get a better track done because I've got that time limit and I'm forcing myself to do that. Still having fun with it in the meantime. Totally. So, and yeah, actually it, it, this is reminding me, like I mentioned, Nick was just down at my place last week. Um, typically when we're working on stuff, like in a day, I'll be like, yo, Nick, I got a new bounce of this track done because I spent like four hours mix, creative stuff, whatever. Like, yeah, here's a bounce. So a day, one bounce in the like 36 hours that Nick was over. We had six like fully arranged <laughs> ideas that by, were no by no means finished. Yeah. But they're like 75 percent of the way there. They're in a point where like him and I are both on the same page. We know exactly where they need to go. Yeah. Um, but it was like knowing that, all right, he's only going to be here for like this afternoon and the next full day. How much can we get out of this time? Yeah. Um, whereas like if he came Monday through Friday, uh, we would get burnt out yeah. working at that pace. Um, so it, it was like a super efficient use of time because we could both get our other stuff done during the week. And then when he was here, we were super focused and got a lot more done than we would have otherwise. I said this on the podcast before, but I'm the most creative when my girlfriend texts me and she says, hey, I'm coming over in 45 minutes because then I'm like, oh, shit, oh, I, know. I have to get something 100%, done. 100 percent. Yeah. We, yeah. we did an idea <laughs> when I was down there and it was literally like I, at the tail end of working before I was leaving. And we're like, uh, let's just try this real quick yeah. and it like it was one of the dopest things we did because of that constraint so right we went into it thinking it'd be like 30 minutes and it turned into two hours but we set that like yeah. 30 minute time frame like in our minds before we do a lot of music for tv and film as well and uh, a lot of the advertisements it's like we need this music yesterday you gotta like turn it out and uh that stuff is super fun to work on because you have these crazy deadlines and they're not self-imposed. Like you have to deliver. Yeah. Um, so we'll knock out like three or four different options for ad agencies in the span of like, I don't know, half a day or something. And then obviously like they come back with feedback and things like that. But the, that world is totally different from the music, the EDM dance music world you don't have time to like obsess over the little details so you have to be super efficient but it's cool because you get creative stuff out of it that you normally wouldn't get i know you two have a lot of different streams of revenue that you do outside of releasing and touring with the disco fries and if we want to hear you two dive into that because i think there's so many interesting ways to make a career and make money in the music industry and people might know your music they might know your brand but they don't know about those other things so talk about what you do outside of the disco fries project in the music industry 
Um, so we're, we try to be involved in every possible facet of the music industry. Um, just at, out of habit, we've like diversified what we're involved with because um, we've had many like ebbs and flows in our career. And for me, at least on the business side, it's always interesting to work in different sides of it, whether that's on our label side. So we have our imprint liftoff. Um, we also have an artist signed by the name of Domenico. He's an R&B electronic artist, and he has an imprint called Il Dottore. Uh, we have an imprint that does like dance pop music with Tommy Sunshine, and that's called Pharmacy. Um, so we have those labels. We also have our publishing company, which most of the music on our label we publish. Um, we have a few writers and producers signed uh, to that, and we do a lot of sync advertisements, like I was saying, but also just like background music for TV shows, um, some movie scoring type stuff uh, here and there. And we try to place a lot of the music we sign to the label onto those shows and such, because it's just another great stream of revenue to have. And then trying to think what other what other things we're involved with. We also are involved with this company, Lime Blue, their neighboring rights collection company. So we do like some consulting for them and uh, we brought in a lot of clients to them. Uh, we do a lot of mixing and mastering. So kind of just not tied to our brand where people have a track, let's say, say it's at like 85% and they can't get like the last tail of the sound design, right? Yeah. And the mixing. And so we'll kind of come in and, and help them with that. Danny, is there anything I'm missing here? <laughs> I'm trying to think. <laughs> I feel like that's pretty much everything. Did you mention mixing? Yeah, you mentioned mixing for other people. I feel like that's probably it. Um, even back when we were in college, uh, we were pitching stuff to music houses to get placements in uh, TV commercials, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but we also uh, just thinking about like finding markets that no one else is touching. We did uh, music uh, mixes for cheerleading teams. And it was a thing we completely started online. We were like, let's find a domain name and we're going to start advertising. And especially like in college, it was great. We would get like two or 300 bucks to turn out like a two minute mashup of like all these songs <laughs> with laser sounds and stuff. Um, and it turned into like, we got to a point where it was more trouble than it was worth. But it's an example of like, there's money there. And there are people that like, can do really well yeah. if they dominate that market. So um, spreading yourself out to do a bunch of these different things, like it all adds up to a, a, a full picture, like where you can really sustain an income. Um, one of the things that Nick and I found out early on was it was really frustrating working with an artist that wasn't spinning a lot of plates Yeah. Um, because we would work with someone. And then a day later it would start with like the, Hey bro, What's up with the track? How's it going? <laughs> and be like, all right, we haven't quite gotten to it yet, but don't worry, it's on the to-do list. And then like, all right, got it. And then later that night, they're like, do you have like a new rough I can hear? And we're like, dude, you, I can't, we can't work with this guy. It's like gonna drive us crazy. So yeah. we we always try to be in that position where our our career isn't hinging on this one thing going through. You really have to diversify to the point where it's like whatever connects connects, and then if something doesn't. You know, it, it wasn't time wasted. It's just, it's not what you were hoping it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a basic ass analogy, but like when you're going to grow a garden, are you going to put one seed in and hope that like 
many tomatoes drop and you're good. You just nurture you... the shit out of that seed. Like... <laughs> yeah, like, or are you going to, like, plant a fucking garden, like, put a bunch of seeds in and rows and, like, water all of them? And then, like, some are going to die off and some are going to be amazing. So, like, we try to think of it the same way. It's 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 kind of a fundamental concept that now, like, we can spot the guys that are, like, you know, hinging on that one record. And we try to avoid those situations, even if they're making like really dope music, it's just a personality quirk that uh, it can really rub you the wrong way. And the other thing is like expectation management. Like if we ask them for a collab or, um, you know, say we even go to like a Tiesto or a Hardwell for a collab, like you have to go in with the idea of like, Yes, let's make the dopest record possible and set it up for as much success as possible. But there is the idea that, like, even if it's the most amazing record, it could come out on the wrong week and you're competing with Calvin Harris and um, all these other chain smokers on the same day and, like, yours gets lost in the sauce. So what are you going to do? Like, close up shop because that one record didn't work? Um, So, yeah, like, I think just having that idea of, everything's always fluid. Like you've got to have a lot of things going on at one time and don't hinge your entire career on one record or one collab or like getting one look from a guy. Like it's, it's, it can make or break you at, it can make you for sure. Like if you get the right record that takes off and the right collab, but it's, it shouldn't break you. So on the topic of multiple streams of revenue, you two are involved in Edium Pride's upcoming mixing course called Mixing for Producers, which I just want to take a few minutes to talk about right now. Cue the self-promo air horns. So as I mentioned during the intro, Edium Prod in a few days is going to be opening access to our flagship debut mixing course called Mixing for Producers. It opens up on March 9th and closes on March 13th. So if you're at all interested, definitely go to the Edium Prod website to give it a look. So first off, why do we decide to create a mixing course and what makes this different from other courses or tutorials that you could find to learn mixing? Well, for the past three years that I've been working at EDM Prod, by far our most requested course or article topic is mixing. And part of the reason is there's not a lot of great resources out there specifically for mixing electronic music. There's definitely some great resources out there for mixing traditional music with bands, but for most of you listening to this podcast, that doesn't directly apply to what you're doing mixing electronic music. And on the flip side, the current courses for mixing specifically electronic music, if I'm being completely honest, really aren't that good. The tracks that they're mixing don't sound anything like the tracks that are currently getting signed. So given that, what makes this Mixing for Producers course so unique and so special? Well, first off, as the name says, it's designed specifically for electronic music producers. We've brought in six very successful artists, the Disco Fries included, to show you exactly what goes into a professional EDM mixdown. There's a lot of really great content in this course, which you can find out more about in the course page, but the main focus of it is going to be five start to finish mix downs where instructors will show you everything that goes into their mix down from the very beginning to the very end to a full polished release ready project. And like I said, these are professional instructors. Every single track that we're going to be walking you through with these mix downs has been released on a major label. I'm talking Spinning, Enhanced Recordings, Proximity, Trap Nation, and This Never Happened. So you're going to get to see exactly what goes into tracks that are getting signed, getting streamed, getting played out. There's no more guessing. You can know exactly what are the tools and tricks that these pros are using. And one of the best parts about this course, in my opinion, is you get access to the exact same stems that our instructors use to mix down their track from start to finish. So not only do you get to watch our instructors and learn everything that goes into a professional mix down, you get to do five of them yourself with expert insight and guidance from the artists. 
Now, like I said, we've got five different instructors working in five different genres. You're going to see the different workflows that they use, the different techniques that they use, how they all use different processes to get to the same end result, which is a polished professional track. And no matter what genre you produce, we're going to have one in there for you. So you can learn some of the intricacies that go into the style that you produce, and then also pick up things from other instructors that you could learn from different styles that you're not as familiar with. So that's enough of me talking. I really want to get your two's input on the Mixing for Producers course, especially because your two mixdowns that you did for it were fantastic. They were so easy to follow. First off, I just want to hear, what was your initial thought when I pitched you to the idea of this course six months ago? Well, we got introduced to you through our buddy Shanahan, and uh, he gave you guys glowing reviews as to how you're structured and just how the courses work in general. Um, and the feedback he's gotten from his own uh, clients and, and students of the courses. So um, it was kind of framed to us in a way that sounded amazing from the jump. What was interesting to us, I think, is um, we do an ongoing ghost producers production tutorial, just kind of sound bites that are like two to three minutes long on YouTube. Um, quick tips, just things that, uh, you know, we'll walk through portions of a project. Uh, but this was the first time that we really like went into a project had to take everything off of it and almost start from scratch in in the way of like how would we how would we approach this if we did it all over again and made it sound the same yeah. um, so we actually learned a lot about our own process while explaining our process which was cool we haven't done anything this long form uh, so that's unique in itself uh, but I think Danny could speak to to some of the things that we touched on in it yeah, so I, another thing that I, I found interesting, and we, we mentioned it a, a number of times throughout our uh, our video, was that um, I was sort of surprised how much of our mix process happens in the production yeah. portion as well. So, um, you know, the choices that you're making uh, with your filter cutoffs or, like, your sound selection, I think I found that a we were doing minimal mixing compared to what we would do if we were mixing someone else's record because we could address so much of it in the in the sound design and the sample selection so it, you know we mentioned that and sort of explained like how we got it to the point where it was in the stems and then but then you realize like all the things that you're using on a regular basis it sort of made me um realize which tools i was relying super super heavily on yeah. um find some areas where maybe we were kind of going overboard with slapping, you know, uh, something like an OTT on, on every track. And once you stripped all of the stuff off, you're like, you know, maybe, maybe we were a little heavy handed on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a good introspective sort of thing. And I think there's hopefully like a lot of useful, useful stuff in there. We, we uh, did both of the projects in Ableton for the course and, uh, used a lot of a lot of the uh, stock plugins in there and apart from that it's really just fab filter uh plugins and like valhalla dsp stuff so I, they're they're tools that I, most producers have and if they don't they should definitely look into them because fab filter uh especially now with pro q3 is like uh i never reach for another eq just because i'm so I know my way around that plugin so well. I think pretty much every person that has gone through your course, including myself and Aiden, our content manager, were like, I need to get FabFilter Pro Q3 after watching you use it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, dude, I, uh, it's life changing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And I think one of the other really cool parts about the course, like you kind of talked about you learning your own workflow and what are the things that you reach for. Because we've got um, essentially seven different instructors and five different mix downs, you get to see the way that different producers and artists approach mixing down their music. You kind of mentioned earlier with the collaboration process where you like to learn different things that other artists are doing, especially when you kind of have your habits. And pretty much everyone that's gone through the course in the past few weeks has said it's been so cool to look at how Enamor, who's one of the other instructors, approaches a mix down with a more technical workflow. He has like 10 buses that he uses in a creative way versus you guys who aren't using buses as much. You kind of use a lot of the Ableton Live plugins, but you get the same end result. So I think that's one of the coolest parts about this is we've got so many different perspectives and insights, five different genres that you're learning too. So you can kind of take what you want from each in the same time too. I'm actually just super psyched to to see the other courses because I'm sure that we're going to learn a tremendous amount yeah. uh, just from what the yeah. other guys are doing. I'm really excited about that. So one last thing kind of on that, um, like I said, course is going to be launching on Monday. We'll just have a five-day launch. It's going to be a big decision, I think, for some people to decide whether or not to take the course. So anything that you two can think of for anyone that's on the fence about whether or not they should check this out. Going back to what we were talking about before with like taking taking the leap um, and just fully committing, I I feel like this is a version of that. You know, if you're an upcoming producer that is doing something else full time but very passionate about your uh, music creation, look at look at what this cost is and consider that like time that you weren't working and just treat it like all right. I'm going to commit to watch all of these videos, take away everything I can from it with the idea that it'll it'll take you to another level as a musician that you can maybe start to make it more of your full-time thing. Um, but you would never really know unless you've fully committed. Um, and even just like money aside, the time commitment to like watch all of these videos and take all the bits rather than, you know, just click through a bunch of five-minute YouTube tutorials. Yeah it takes a certain amount of discipline, but like you're going to pick up on things that you wouldn't in like a flashy five minute YouTube thing. Uh, I've sat, I've watched a few of the masterclass things and um, like the Timberland one, dead mouse, Armin, and it, they are time commitments. Like I, I watch them on planes or something so that I, I'm not just like at my computer for hours, but, um, but you do pick up like, insights even if it's not like specific tips and tricks it's more of like a mentality that you're yeah that you're absorbing uh that you can only get when you're fully immersed in that world for a long time and getting someone else's like total perspective on it the other thing i'd mention is like how's how is this one different from you know there there are so many other courses out there i think what you guys are doing different which is super dope and why we were interested in particular in being part of your whole organization is it was super tactical. Like there are some, some things about the the masterclass series or some of the other ones that are like kind of heady and about the vibe and like more story based, which is cool. But I think this is very like hands-on. How do you achieve this sound? How do you achieve this part of the mix? How do you get your bass and kick to sit a certain way? And there are very, poignant steps on how to get to those places yeah in, uh, you know and what we did um so i'm always trying to think of like you know for our own stuff how can we get somewhere faster or is there is there like a a loophole or a hack to get somewhere and like this is this takes all this knowledge and like condenses it down so you're like danny said not aimlessly searching on youtube you're not making a zillion mistakes 
to then get a result like we're showing you how to do it like so you avoid that that time and that hassle and again students taking this course can trust your advice because you've got the decade-long track record to prove it and it's the same with the other instructors i think that's a super valuable aspect to this where these are real instructors that are in the industry releasing music like i said all of these tracks are released on big labels so you know that the content there you can trust and it's not aimless time that you're going to be wasting on youtube not really soaking up that content i think one of the biggest things for me for this course was to have access to the stems for the students because this is hands-on learning this isn't you just going to the bathroom watching a quick um you know youtube tutorial this is you in your DAW practicing these things so that you can get a better mixing workflow and then obviously learning and picking up all these practical tips and tricks along the way for sure cool so let's wrap it up there don't want to spend too much time on it few more things that I want to touch on, and then we will close things off for this podcast. Um, one thing that you talked about earlier is you two working remotely right now. I want to kind of dive into what that process is like, at least for the music aspect, collaborating on music remotely. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that might not necessarily have a duo that's remote, but might just be working on collabs um, long distance. So kind of talk about at least now what that workflow looks like for you two. So uh, when we initially started, when I first moved back down here, uh, we attempted to recreate um, the vibe of like being in the room together. And we were doing screen sharing, audio streaming. We had Skype up, so we were like talking. And it was cool, but super like taxing yeah. for my laptop. So we didn't keep that up for too long. Now, now for the most part, uh, we just sort of do our own thing and check in with the other person uh, throughout the process. Like if you went in our Dropbox, you would see like such and such track V1, V1A, V1B, V1C clip. And it's just like, you know, I'd send something to Nick. He'd be like, this is dope, but this build there's like too much going on in the build that it makes the drop anticlimactic. Yeah. Um, and then it'd be like, all right, well here, let me bounce out this 16 bars with this tweaked and this element pulled out. And we kind of do a back and forth like that, but it's, it's great because it, it, it sort of allows both of us to do, do our, do our thing, but then get that, uh, that other perspective occasionally to keep it, keep it in line. Yeah. Um, we also have very different listening environments. So like mix wise, there's stuff that I'll think sounds great. I send it to Nick. He's, he'll tell me, you know, the sub is way too long. You need to like shorten this kick up because it's yeah. eating all the room, whatever. Um, so we found that that works uh, really well for us. I don't, part of that is just our uh, relationship. We've known each other for so long that we already sort of know some of what the other person is going to be thinking. We're pretty much on the same page um having like the shared dropbox where there's just like a constant motion of files that are popping up and we're getting alerts like oh there's a new one in check that and then i can refer to the one below it because that was the previous bounce it's it streamlines it i'm sure there are way more efficient ways that we could do it this is just what's worked for us um and then like sometimes daniel drops something in and i'll be like all right can you just break that out into like three stems like the kick rest of drums and then the instrumental and i'll like try a bunch of different kicks while he's working on arranging it out so he's not wasting time on like finding the perfect kick so that helps the process along sometimes so just little things like that 
the other thing that I think um, uh, has been beneficial is uh, so now for the longest time, Nick and I both worked in logic. I switched to Ableton. Uh, I don't know, like three years ago or something like that. And uh, so now we're not even working in the same DAW primarily. Like yeah. we both, we can both work in either, but we both have different preferences. Um, so in a lot of cases, um, it, it's the sort of thing, like if Nick starts something in logic, I really don't touch it till he's like good with it. And then I'll run some stems and put it into Ableton. And then you're kind of committed to that, yeah. uh, to those sounds or whatever. So there's, there's a certain level of commitment to stuff that I think helps speed the production process up. Um, and kind of on a similar, similar thing is sometimes if I were to Nick, it, like if Nick was working on a project and he said, all right, I just finished this thing. I want you to take a listen. If I opened up logic and played back the session while I was like looking at what he did, I would have a very different totally. perspective than if I just heard a bounce of it. So the fact that I'm constantly just getting bounces from him really lets me listen to it like a, a just an average person rather than as a producer. Yeah. Um, that's because such a good point. I never thought about that. <laughs> Yo, such a good I can't point. tell you how many times like you've sent me something that I was like, this is dope. Um, I'll listen to it on my phone. I'm like, this is awesome. I go down in the studio. I'm even more psyched <laughs> about it. I open up the logic session and I start looking at stuff and I'm like, what the fuck was this guy doing? Like, oh, dude, I'm going to, I'm going to start tweaking this, tweaking this. And then like 30 minutes later, I'm like, no, this sucks now. Like it yeah. was, it was perfect. I needed to, I needed to bounce these stems out, bring it into Ableton and add to it, not change it. Cause it was already, it was already great. But just because like, I don't know, I, I get neurotic about like all these little technical things that I think is going to improve the track. But in reality, it's just like, that's just, it's insignificant. I remember now thinking about it. I remember back in the day, like we used to, <laughs> we used to like turn off the monitor, like to reference our tracks because the, the same reason, like number one, just a visual is taken away, like your auditory senses, but like, you're you're watching everything that's happening so you're seeing things that you might want to change or that are wrong and you're not really totally dialed into listening to it yeah and i remember doing that and it's probably a good technique to bring back oh, but it's just 100%. another another tech technique that you guys can can run with out there <laughs> so yeah the two, even being like on your phone while you're listening honestly yeah, yeah. like i i find like i'm not really paying attention but i now that you bring it up, I remember like we would turn the monitor off. We would both just like sit there, probably like eyes closed. And occasionally, like if you heard something, you would you would check what time it was at and write down like a little note, like you yeah. know this this element needs to come down. Um, but doing that periodically, like you'll very quickly gain a better perspective on what where your music needs to go. I wish somebody had video footage of that. Really? <laughs> yeah, right. No, like if somebody had video footage of that and they just muted the the sound so it just looks super awkward, that would be great. Um, and like the end goal, obviously, when you're creating music is for somebody to hear it not inside Ableton Live or Logic. So it's super important to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the listener, which is difficult when you've been in a project for so long. But I think that's such an easy hack yeah, to yeah. do that. One of the things that I do on my Mac um, is essentially you can set up hot corners where you drag your mouse to any of the corners in your Mac and you can set what those trigger. 
So the way that I've got it set up right now is if I go to the bottom left, it triggers just a black background. It's like a screensaver. So anytime I just want to listen to the track in half a second, swipe down, boom, the track is, or the screen is black and I can just focus on it. And if I'm producing an Ableton full screen, I'll just swipe to my desktop, look at whatever background I have there. And again, just yep. try to hear the song for just what it is. So I think crucial tip there. Definitely. Cool. So to kind of wrap things up, uh, we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to somebody that's just kind of picking up production to give them the best chance of success moving forward? Wow, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> well, it, you know, everybody starts at a different point, right? Some people, some people like in the hip hop space want to sample records and chop up audio. Other guys are more into like programming and, and MIDI and so forth. Um, I, even though I use Logic, I think Ableton is a great jumping off point because it's kind of got the best of both worlds. Um, it's not super MIDI heavy like Logic. Uh, it's got a lot of flexibility on audio and it's just like super user friendly to out of the box jump into. Um, so that's the first place I'd start just from like a fundamental level. If you're just trying to figure out like where to begin, that's a great program to get into. I also think, um, you know, if, if you're a producer that wants to grow your brand, start to get bigger opportunities, work with bigger artists, all that stuff. Um, I think the thing that I see the most is the guys that are, that are doing very well and progressing well, um, have sort of found a community that, yeah. uh, that really embraces them. So there's so many DJ focused labels, hexagon, musical freedom, confession, hell deep, whatever it is. Um, I find a lot of the artists on those labels uh, really accelerate a lot quicker than guys that are just kind of doing everything. This this is coming from two guys that like <laughs> release on different labels for almost every single release. Yeah, like we're constantly bouncing around. But I think it's it's a great way to like. There's a built-in fan base. Um, a lot of a lot of those labels are run by great DJs that. Uh, offer like excellent mentorship sort of roles. Um, and granted, you know, on Hexagon, there's maybe a dozen guys that release there on the regular, but sort of like recognizing which one makes the most sense for you and setting that as a goal. Like, you know, I'm going to, once, once my tracks are in a place where it makes sense, I'm going to start reaching out to the demo drop, you know, email yeah. for Hexagon, because that's ultimately where I would like to be. Um, and cause I mean, that's, essentially how we uh how we broke through with this uh avici bootleg that we did because we were hitting the like demo drop on hardwell's thing for hardwell on air and it got featured as like you know the unsigned track of the week or demo of the week or whatever it was yeah and then once he did it then tiesto saw it and he started playing it and that was sort of like an entry point for us where like you, you know we had done plenty of other tracks or remixes prior to that that our production level was at the same point but that just happened to be the one that connected yeah um so i think i think sort of finding that community is a great way to start the ball rolling to get momentum because it is really hard when you you have you know 50 followers on your soundcloud or on spotify like and you feel like you're just putting something up and no one's hearing it yeah um Another so another great way is to um, kind of leverage if you have something going on in a certain market. Uh, so, like for instance, for example, 
our buddy Mimo that I was mentioning earlier that we've since signed to a publishing deal and we're super invested in and want to see him grow and and have helped him grow uh, and get a lot of radio support. His his way of kind of like reaching out to us was bringing it bringing us in and booking us in Cleveland. Um, and he booked us multiple times and helped us get in a couple different venues there. And we since like built a rapport and and have like a longstanding friendship now. But um, like using whatever your thing might be that you're involved with, even if it's not in the music industry, uh, let's just say you you do photography or you make music videos or lyric videos or whatever it might be, just some way to help solve a solve an issue or or help an artist in some way uh, that might be bigger than you is a great way to kind of leverage what you have to help them. And then in turn, like ideally, like they you build a friendship with them and they're responsive to listening to your music and give you feedback and things like that. So I'm always like looking for ways that we can kind of help people solve problems. Cause I think if you're a problem solver, like people always just kind of come back to you and you end up building really cool friendships. Um, but then who knows when you have your own problem and you, and you might need to pull them in. So I think that's a, a cool way to think about things. So one more question that popped up and then we'll actually wrap things up is what is inspiring you guys right now in 2020 to create music and continue growing, whether it's certain artists that you think are killing it or a scene. I'm kind of curious, like what is kind of fueling you at this point? Music that we can play in our sets. Yeah. Uh, Like we've made so much music that's been like self-indulgent and like we love to listen to it, but then like we can never experience it out. So I think, lately what we've been trying to do is like ride that line of things that we love making but also we can experience with fans and they fit into a set the right way like they're not just kind of like an anomaly and a tag at the end of the set because it doesn't fit in anywhere else um family affair for instance was just like a bootleg we did of the mary j blige record and we did it for fun but it turned into us being able to clear it and put it out on spinning and now there hasn't been a set where we don't play it in a year plus. Uh, so making more records like that, I think is, is definitely one of our main goals. And I think, you know, that's, that changes. Uh, that's not going to be every artist's goal. Some artists really want to like have music that speaks to people as a listener, and then they can build like a live show out of it down the road or something. Yeah. But recently for sure, I think, you know, we've been on the road. We, uh, we didn't tour a whole lot, through the winter, it usually slows down. And now it's now that it's been picking back up, uh, it's got both of us really excited to make more um, just like broad club music that kind of works in anyone's sets. Um, we've been playing a lot of this stuff from Sid's new label. So stuff in that style. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, to wrap things up, I know we've talked about a lot about what's going to be going on for you guys this year, but what's going to be coming up for you in the next year to six months? A shit ton of music. <laughs> yeah, we have- we're, we're releasing like every few weeks, uh, whether it's an original record or a remix, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of relentless how much music we're making and, <laughs> and now sitting on, but uh, we're packing out the schedule this year and uh, we're doing a lot of cool shows. We have uh, Miami coming up. Uh, we're playing the spinning sessions party. That's set, uh, Saturday of uh, WMC week. Uh, so we're psyched about that got Vegas coming up and a bunch of other cities. So um, that's kind of what we're doing there. And then 
uh, we're really growing our label. So it's like a big focus to bring in uh, just a lot of new, cooler records. Again, stuff that we would play out in our sets because we've put out plenty of like listening records that are just sound dope, uh, but we're not able to play them out. But I think uh, putting out more stuff that we can really get behind live is important. All right. Well, with that, we will wrap things up for this episode. You can all find the Disco Fries music in the description of this podcast. So definitely go give that a listen as this episode is just about over. And be sure to check out their mix downs in Mixing for Producers, which again is going to be out on March 9th, closes March 13th. So definitely go give that a look. Uh, Danny and Nick, been great chatting with you guys and appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. Thanks for having us.